The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new Toyota truck, like a rugged half-ton Tundra. Workhorse by nature, powerhouse by design, the Tundra combines raw capability with premium comfort and advanced tech to fuel your wildest adventures. And with the available iForce Max Hybrid powertrain, you can take electrifying horsepower farther than ever before. Or check out the fully redesigned Tacoma, delivering trail-dominating power and captivating style. The new Tacoma was born to make your off-roading dreams come true. And with new available tech, this legendary truck is getting even better. And when you buy a Toyota truck, you buy Toyota dependability, meaning your truck will hold its value long into the future. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Welcome to the Jill on Money Show. It's Sunday, September 4th. It's Labor Day weekend, and we are concluding our summer author series with the second part of our interview with Katie Milkman. Katie is the author of How to Change, the Science of Getting from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be. And um, I think that the way that she weaves together her research with real life stories, it really does resonate with me. So I hope it does for you too. Here's part two of our interview with Katie Milkman. One of the things that was very striking to me is this part of the book where you talk about how people can be intimidated when they hear successes of others. And I want to tell you, like, I want to get your advice because on this program, we have people who will contact us who have a ton of money and we have people who contact us who have no money. And often we'll get um, sort of like a snide remark or someone will write to me and be like, oh, you only put rich people on the air. And I always say, well, I don't really care. Rich people, poor people, like whoever has a financial question will answer it. What is it about hearing about someone else's success that makes people feel bad and not really even think about like, well, that has nothing to do with me. Like, what is it that I can do better when I'm talking to these people to make them feel like, hey, it's all inclusive. Like, we'll bring everyone on the air. What can I do better? That's a really wonderful question. What you're talking about, it relates to research on social norms. So social norms are the behaviors we see others exhibiting that can be contagious. So I see everybody else is uh, studying hard in my dorm and it makes me likely to be a more studious freshman, for instance. And, you know, other behaviors can be contagious, too. I see, I learned that a bunch of my friends went to a retirement savings workshop and they're all going to open 401ks. I'm a bit more likely to do the same. But the challenge comes when the people you're observing taking some action that you might not otherwise have thought to take yourself are people who feel out of reach. They don't, you can't relate to them. They seem impossibly successful or impossibly different. So the more we can relate to someone, the more we want to follow in their footsteps and we recognize the information as valuable that they give us and, and imitable. That's, I like it. <laughs> so, so the more you can do, I think, to make those callers really relatable and and highlight what's the same about all of us and what we're, our common struggles are, even, by the way, like common demographic traits. Hey, they're from the same region. Uh, they grew up with a similar set of circumstances. Whatever you can do, it makes the 
person more relatable and feel more like you tends to increase the likelihood we'll follow them. There's this really interesting study that was done. I This is going to sound like a weird context, but this interesting study done with hotel towel reuse, trying to encourage people to reuse their towels by telling them lots of other people reuse their towels. And there were different messages tried about whether it was just lots of other people or lots of other people who are also citizens. The, the most effective framing was other people who literally stayed in the same hotel room, which seems like a funny basis for having a lot of identification, but but people could identify, hey, oh, it really was a similar set of circumstances. So the more you can highlight that, the better. How do we keep people on track and not lose them in the process? I mean, I hate finger waggers. You know, it's like one of my pet peeves. I hate when people are like, you know, you did this wrong or you're spending too much money. I don't I don't think that works. First of all, what is the the positive way to reinforce the good behavior? There are a lot of positive things that we can do to reinforce behavior. And that that is so important that, you know, rewards after something good has happened are a big part of what helps form cycles of virtuous behavior. That's where habits come from, right? You consistently do the same thing and you get rewarded for it and then it turns into a habit. So certainly, you know, just cheering people on for their successes rather than finger wagging for their failures is likely to add value if you're trying to create those virtuous cycles. I also think we can put people on pedestals more when one thing that research shows can be really valuable actually is asking someone who's facing a challenge but pushing through or attempting to push through to give advice to others on how to overcome the same kinds of challenges or reach the same kinds of goals. And a reason that that seems to be effective is that it makes you feel like I'm a role model instead of just giving me advice about how I can be more successful. You're actually asking me to give other people advice. This is a really great insight from Lauren Estris Winkler, a psychologist who's about to join the faculty at the Kellogg School at Northwestern. I think that might be another another tactic we can use when we want to help people persist and highlight their successes is thinking about ways we can not only praise them, but put them on a pedestal by saying, hey, you know, I have another friend who is also trying to achieve a similar goal. And I think you've, you're doing such an amazing job. Would you be willing to give them some tips that will actually help the person who's giving the tips be more successful themselves? Now, why is that? Because I find that fascinating that the giving advice isn't just helpful for the person you're giving advice to. Is it amount of confidence? I mean, what is it behind giving advice that makes the person, the advice giver more successful? There's a few ingredients. And by the way, almost everything that is effective in this realm has a few things going on. It's almost always multiply determined. That's part of the power. But one is absolutely the self-confidence boost that you get from being asked to give advice. Someone is telling you, I believe in you. I think you have useful insights to share. And that puffs out your chest and, and makes you feel more motivated and more capable right away. But there's other magic ingredients as well, including now that I have to give someone advice, I have to introspect more deeply so that I have something to say about what really does work. I have to put that into words for someone else. And when you articulate something, you are more likely to dredge up insights you might not have had already that then could help you. But also, once you tell someone else you should do this, you're going to feel like a hypocrite if you don't do it yourself. And proselytizing about something is one of the best ways to change your own beliefs about it. There's something called the saying is believing effect. So all of those things together make advice giving really beneficial for the advice giver, which is fascinating. 
in the book and in 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 your research, you know, you are a, a behavioral economist. You are an academic. What surprised you in your findings that was counterintuitive that you never would have believed before you started actually researching that? I think the most counterintuitive finding from all of my work has been around the best way to form habits. And we did this experiment. I mentioned Google earlier. This was actually, I went back to Google and did this work with some of the folks I had talked to about the fresh start effect. And we were trying to figure out how to help employees form lasting exercise habits. Actually, after the start of a new year, lots of people want to form them, go to the the gyms on campus. And we had about 2,500 people sign up. And we had this formula in our heads that we were sure would produce lasting change, which was get people to go in a really consistent manner at the same time of day, every day that they went for a month. And then we thought if we could just really motivate people to be consistent in that routine, that we'd create a sticky habit that would endure. And we compared getting people to go always at the same time to getting them to go in a more variable pattern, just as a test to see, you know, maybe flexibility was valuable. We were pretty sure it was that consistency that would breed routine. So we had two groups, randomly assign them. Um, one group we got going to the gym, 85% of the visits at the same time. The other group went at the same frequency, but in a more varied pattern, about half the visits were at the same time. And what we found in the end was that the group who had more variable visits actually created a longer lasting habit. So after the month where we're intervening and trying to control the, the timing of their visits ends, they keep going more. And it was really absolutely fascinating to figure out why what we learned is essentially they'd formed really brittle habits if people were going to the gym at a really consistent time. So they actually went slightly more at that magic time they had identified when they had been going 85% of the time during our month-long program. But if they missed that magic window, say 7 a.m. being their best workout time, they were very unlikely to go. Whereas the other group had formed a more flexible habit. If they missed their 8 a.m. workout, they would go at noon. If they missed noon, they would go at 5 p.m. And that more flexible habit proved to be much more durable. And net-net, they, they went more. So that was probably the most surprising thing I found uh, to me. It makes sense in hindsight, but in foresight, I was sure that this consistency and routine would be absolutely critical to forming durable habits. And discovering the importance of flexibility was really interesting. Okay, that's it for our summer author series. We are back in the saddle this coming week, and we hope you have a good Labor Day. Hope you don't think too much about your money, but if you do, just go to jillonmoney.com, click the Contact Us button, get whatever is bugging you off of your mind, out of your head, and put it into our universe. We can help you out. Mark and I are both certified financial planners, and we really love talking to you directly about the things going on in your financial lives. So jillonmoney.com, the contact us button, that's your key to getting everything you would like. I hope you're not laboring tomorrow on Labor Day, and I hope that you do something nice for someone else today. Grit, growth, grace. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.